you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. And we're going to pray together and we're going to ask for grace and help from God to hear His Word, to understand it rightly, and most of all, for grace to respond to the Word of God, that we would be doers of the Word this morning. So let's pray. Let's call upon the name of the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name, and we come again, Lord, to praise you. God, we thank you for your presence in the midst of your people. Lord, you dwell in this temple, in this church. Lord, you walk among the lampstands of your local churches. And we pray, Lord Jesus, today that you would be exalted, that you would be glorified. That your mighty power would be manifested in our midst. That your glory would be shown to your people. And Lord, we pray that a glimpse of your glorious character would be displayed through this local church. God, help us. You brought us forth by the word of truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us by your word. That you would make us more like Christ. We ask for grace this morning to submit to your teaching. To bow down to you and call you Lord and Master and Teacher. And we ask for your help, Lord, to understand. God, send out your light and your truth. And we pray that your light would lead us to to your holy hill. To the place of your dwelling. Lord, bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, today we start a several-week study through Matthew 24. Now this chapter is called the Olivet Discourse because this prophecy that we're about to, to read together was given while Jesus was standing on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem, given privately to his disciples. And what the Olivet Discourse is, is a long, descriptive, apocalyptic prophecy of Jesus Christ regarding the last things. Okay? Which means we are about to dig into eschatology together as a local church. The study of the last things over the next several weeks. And I want to remind you before we begin that this is a disputed area of Christian theology. Okay? Now don't get me wrong. There is tremendous agreement in the church, in the body of Christ, regarding the main event at the end of history. Our Lord Jesus will return. He will return visibly. He will return publicly. He will return bodily. He will return gloriously on the last day to save the righteous and judge the wicked. This is what the New Testament calls our blessed hope. And there's glorious agreement across the body of Christ that Jesus is coming back. That he's going to return to reign forever. But there is considerable disagreement regarding the details of the unfolding of the last things. So we're going to talk about that together. 
this morning. And so what should that mean? That should govern our approach. What should we do as Christians and as a local church? We should boldly hold to and proclaim the main event at the end of history, our blessed hope. And we should humbly hold to our positions about the details of the last things, especially the timing of these events. And so with that reminder in front of us, let's read God's word together this morning. Matthew 24, and we're going to back up a little bit and begin in verse 1, and we'll cover this morning the first portion of the Olivet Discourse down to verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now at the beginning of our time I want us to get in front of us. There are many different approaches that have been taken to interpreting the Olivet Discourse. I want to summarize those approaches under three categories for us this morning to give you three broad categories. There's some minor variations of views, but this will give you the main idea of how this prophecy of Jesus has been approached by the church of Jesus Christ. These categories that we're about to talk about this morning are basically three different ways of answering this question. Was this prophecy, and this paragraph is only the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, was this prophecy fulfilled in 70 AD 
which is the day where the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, sacked the holy city. Okay? And so the question that determines the approach to the Olivet Discourse is this question. Was this prophecy fulfilled in 70 AD? Okay? Approach number one says, yes, it was. Okay? Approach number two says, no, it wasn't. And approach number three says, kind of. Kind of it was, kind of it wasn't. So we're going to walk through those three approaches together this morning. The fir first approach is what is known as the preterist view. And the preterist view understands that everything in Matthew 24 is fulfilled in 70 A.D. Okay? When the temple was destroyed by the Romans and the holy city was sacked. Uh, this, is the, this is the view of prominent evangelical scholars such as R.C. Sproul. This is R.C. Sproul's view that everything in the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in 70 A.D. And what the preterists understand when Jesus prophesies his coming in chapter 24 is the preterist view understands this not as the second coming of Christ on the final day, but this prior coming of Jesus in judgment specifically upon Jerusalem. Now the strength of this view, and, and you need to understand that you know, each, there's a reason why uh, 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 brothers who love the Bible take these you know, different views. And the strength of this view is, uh, let's note several things. Number one, it deals seriously with the context. So think about where we've been as a local church the past several weeks. We've been talking about Jesus bringing judgment upon Jerusalem. I mean, you might be tired of hearing about that if you've been here for the past four, five, six weeks. It's been this consistent theme from Matthew 20 all the way now to we're into 24 of this curse is being pronounced and prefigured upon Israel and upon Jerusalem. Okay? And then you have, if it's the context of this question that the disciples asked Jesus, that actually provokes this prophecy. So Jesus prophesies that the temple is going to be torn down in verse 2. And then the disciples asked Jesus in verse 3, when are these things going to be? Okay? And you would expect that Jesus' answer, at least in part, deals with the, the destruction of the temple. There's a flow from the destruction of the temple, the curse upon Israel, into the Olivet Discourse, into this prophecy of Jesus. And probably the main strength of the preterist view is later in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is going to prophesy... That these things will be accomplished in this generation. Matthew 24, 34. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that's a very similar phrase to what Jesus said uh, in the previous chapter when he's talking about their house is going to be made desolate. That this generation, the most, most natural way to read that. It's the generation that is alive when Jesus is speaking. And so the preterists are able to account for these things. The biggest weakness in the preterist reading of the Olivet Discourse is stretching the language about the return of Jesus 
to be fulfilled in 70 AD. So look really quickly at verses uh, 30 and 31. Jesus describes his coming, his return, in these cosmic signs. This cosmic upheaval that precedes the return of Christ. Uh, sun darkened, uh, uh, moon not giving light, uh, powers of the heavens are shaken, uh, the sign of the Son of Man, global mourning, uh, and then he gathers his elect in verse 31 from the ends of the earth. And so the preterists are, are attempt to, to apply that language to a 70 AD fulfillment, and that's the biggest weakness of this position, is that's a stretch. Okay? That's a, that's a stretch. All right, the second view is the futurist view. And the futurist view is opposite the preterist view. Okay? The futurist view understands everything in chapter 24 to have not yet been fulfilled, waiting fulfillment upon or prior to the return of Christ. Okay? This is the view of prominent evangelical scholars. This is the view of John MacArthur, for example, the futurist view. And the strengths and weaknesses are the exact opposite of what we just covered. The strength of the futurist view is Jesus surely does seem to be prophesying the second coming with these global cosmic signs and the elect being gathered. That seems not to be uh, the near future, but the final day. Okay? And that's the strength of the futurist Position, the weakness of the futurist view is it doesn't account very well for the context and the flow of Matthew's gospel of a judgment and a curse are falling upon Israel. The temple is going to be destroyed. And then all of a sudden Jesus starts talking about something different than the destruction of the temple. And probably the biggest weakness of the futurist view is the handling of the phrase in verse 34, that Jesus is calling for a fulfillment of these things in this generation is what Jesus says. Okay. So now you understand the contours and we'll come to the third category. And the third approach is called the blended view or the hybrid view. Some people call it the eclectic view. Okay. And it takes a both and approach to the Olivet Discourse. In other words, how is the question answered? Is this fulfilled in 70 AD? And the answer to the blended view is kind of. Some things are, but some things aren't fulfilled in 70 AD. This is the view of prominent evangelical scholars. This is the view of D.A. Carson. This is the view of Michael Kruger and others. Okay? And I will argue over the next couple of weeks that this approach makes the best sense of everything that Jesus says. And you need to understand that's our task. Okay? It's easy to make sense of part of what Jesus says. The great challenge of interpreting prophecy is making sense of everything that Jesus says. And I believe this approach uh, best explains everything that Jesus prophesies in this chapter. But I don't want you to simply accept this. And blindly agree with it. What are we? We're disciples of Jesus. We want to test this by the word of God. We want to test these things. Are these things so? Is this what God's word really teaches? And so I encourage you to do that today, every day, uh, today and over the next several weeks. That you would test these things by the word of God. Is this so? Is this really what God's word 
teaches. Okay? I believe noting the structure of the Olivet Discourse is going to help you a lot. Um, and I think that you, you'll see that this is, in fact, how we're supposed to understand these words. And so we will start this morning in verse 3 with the disciples' question. Okay? They come to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him two things. They ask, one's a when, one's a, one, one is a uh, what. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Okay? That's the question the disciples asked Jesus. Jesus' prophecy, remember this, over the next several weeks is answering that question. Right? Um, now, what triggered that question is back in verse 2. Jesus says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple. Okay? Now, I want you to imagine for a moment what your reaction would be if a true prophet prophesied to you that a national monument was going to be destroyed in your nation. Okay? Think about that for just a second. A true prophet prophesies to you that the White House is going to be torn down brick from brick. Or Mount Rushmore is going to be effaced. Or, um, or a really good example of this, uh, 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 the, when the Twin Towers were destroyed. Okay? Think about how that affects a nation when these prominent markers are all of a sudden removed. What would happen? Well, we know what would happen. It would be headline news for several weeks. Okay? It would be the top story for several weeks. It would be really, really important and devastating for a nation. Okay? But it, we wouldn't interpret those things in this way. That this national monument was destroyed. Therefore, our nation can no longer continue. In other words, it would be really, really bad news, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. America goes on without the White House. Okay? And I wanted to uh, draw a distinction in your mind. Is that a first century Jew would not have thought that way about the temple in Jerusalem. They would have not... They wouldn't have thought in those categories, okay, temple is going to be destroyed, but we're going to go on. And every, at, at the end of the day, this is not the end of the world. Everything will be fine. The temple was so central for this nation that for a first century Jew to lose the temple was like losing God. Okay, This was not... The, you know, the mutual gathering place in Israel where you see those friends in Israel that you hadn't seen since the last feast day. That's not all the temple is. What is the temple? It's the dwelling place of Yahweh in the midst of Israel. In other words, it's not just this, 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 this landmark has been destroyed. It's God's presence is being removed from this nation. It's the only thing that distinguishes them from all the other nations of the earth. And so this prophecy, I want you to understand that, would have been devastating to this first century worldview. Okay? God's judgment falling on the temple could mean only one thing. 
the end of the world. Okay? It's all over after this. All right? Now, that's not the right way of thinking. I'm just setting this before you. That would have been the typical way that Jesus' prophecy would have been understood in the mind of a Jew in his day. The destruction of the temple and the end of the world, were they would have been linked together in their mind as one event. Two sides of one event. Jesus basically with his prophecy in verse 2 says, You see that place where you go for the forgiveness of sins and for the worship of God? It's going to be torn to the ground. Imagine how that would land on you in this context. That's the place of forgiveness. That's the place of atonement. What do you mean it's not going to be here anymore? All right? And so with this conflation... In the minds of the disciples, the disciples are confused in their thinking. They, they have partial understanding, but they don't understand the whole thing. Jesus, in his prophecy, is going to show them that these are two distinct events. Okay? The destruction of the temple and the end of the world, the end of the age, are two distinct events. In other words, one of the things that we're going to learn through the Olivet Discourse is there is going to be a delay, an unexpected delay, between the judgment upon Jerusalem and the return of Jesus Christ. Okay? The end will not come as immediately as they are expecting. Okay? Notice that the first thing that Jesus begins to describe in these two paragraphs is, is given a label... In verse 8, Jesus calls them birth pains, right? These are the beginning of the birth pains. So he's saying there's some things that are about to happen. We're going to talk about that this morning. But these things are the birth pains. They're not the end. Okay. In fact, look how clearly he says it in verse 6. He says, this must take place, but the end is what? Not yet. Okay? Birth pains first. The end is not yet. And so I believe this phrase, the birth pains, refers to these two paragraphs. Everything that Jesus says in verses 4 through 14. And what these are is their general descriptions of the entire inner Advent period. And what that means is their general descriptions... Of the entire period of time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. In other words, if you want to know what life's going to be, typical life's going to be like in the last days, in the, in, 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 in the final hour, the present age that we live in, Jesus says these are distinguishing features of the last days, the times that we live in, the present age. Okay? We live between the two comings of Christ, and this age is marked by birth pains. And then notice what he says in verse 14. After these things, what? Then the end will come. Okay? These things are not the end. They are the birth pains. Notice considerable time is going to pass before the end comes. So think about this from the disciples' perspective. They're not expecting Jesus to come back and return the day after he dies. Why? Because Jesus says nation's going to rise against nation. 
He says there are going to be famines and earthquakes. He says there's going to be persecution and some of you are going to be delivered and killed. In other words, those things take time. That's not a 20-minute thing. There's going to be some time that develops and then the end will come. Okay? And these will be the distinguishing features of the present age. They're not the end, verse 6. They're prior to the end. The end is in the distant future, whereas these things are in the immediate present. This is really important for you to get that distinction. Okay? That's blended together in the mind of the disciples in their question. Jesus separates that question and makes a distinction between those two things in his prophecy. And so birth pains, according to Jesus, will be experienced during the entire inner Advent period. And then the end will come. Okay? Now, look really quickly at verse 15. And this is where we'll head next week. In verse 15, Jesus zones in on a particularly sharp birth pain. Okay? That he calls the abomination of desolation, which is about the destruction of the temple and the sacking of the holy city, uh, Jerusalem, by the Romans. Again, these things aren't the end, but they're the birth pains, and the abomination of desolation is a particularly sharp birth pain. It's not the end, it happens before the end. And so that period between the destruction of the temple, the abomination of desolation, and the return of Jesus, the end, Luke 21 gives us a name for that period. Luke 21, verse 24, and it's called the times of the Gentiles. Holy city is going to be trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus even refers to the Gentiles here when he says the gospel of the kingdom is going out to all the nations, all the Gentiles, and then the end will come. And so before Jesus comes back and after the temple is destroyed, there's going to be this gospel testimony to all the nations of the earth. Which again is going to take some considerable amount of time. There's going to be a delay between the destruction of the temple and the return of Jesus. And so this, this morning we're going to cover these birth pains that Jesus prophesies in verses 3 through 14. And next week we will dig into verse 15, the abomination of desolation. So what does Jesus say here? He tells us that this age will be marked by certain features. These are things that you can count on until they're cyclical realities until Jesus returns. They're not signs of the end of history. They're continual marks of the unfolding of history. Jesus is going to get to the sign of his coming later in verse 24. The birth pains are not the signs of the coming of Christ. Okay? And what you see here is five separate categories. How should we think about them? How should we receive them this morning? What Jesus is doing is he's managing our expectations of what life is going to be like between his two comings. Okay? These are prophecies of the characteristics of this present age. Number one is it's going to be an age of deception and apostasy. 
Notice this in verse 4 and 5. In fact, notice this about verse 4. The very first lesson that Jesus teaches his disciples about the last things is this. Don't let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anyone lead you astray. One of the hooks that cults use to draw people into their system are elaborate last day schemes. And look, notice what he says here. Don't let anybody lead you astray. That ought to wake us up as disciples of Jesus that we are going to be in perpetual temptation to be led astray from the truth. And so we have to stand firm. We have to stand firm. This age, the age between the two comings of Jesus, is essentially a truth war. Okay? There's a cosmic battle right now between light, the kingdom of light, and the kingdom of darkness. How does it play out? Well, it doesn't play out in this physical way where you can see the invisible you know, powers warring against each other. How does it play out? It's a truth war. There's a cosmic conflict all around us right now over what the truth is. Okay? There's a truth war going on all around us. And Jesus tells us in verses 4 and 5 that throughout the entire church age, there will be an ever-present danger of being led astray by false teachers. Then he comes back and he says the same thing in verse 10. What, is, what does Jesus say in verse 10? Many will fall away. That's apostasy. That means they'll start out following Jesus, but they won't continue following Jesus. Look at what he says again in verse 11. Jesus says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Many false prophets, many apostates. How should we receive this prophecy of Jesus? It ought to wake us up. This age is not an age of coasting. To heaven, Jude 3 tells us this age is an age of contending, not coasting, but contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You cannot put your walk with Jesus on doctrinal autopilot and coast into heaven. You have to fight the fight of faith. You have to guard the good deposit. You have to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because you live in an age of deception and apostasy. Characteristic number two, Jesus says in verse six, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. He says something similar in verse 7. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In other words, 